Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the transformative psychotherapy of Milton Erickson. My guest is Dr. Paul J. Leslie, who is a professor of psychology at Aiken College in Aiken, South Carolina, where he also has a private psychotherapy practice. He is the author of several books, including Low Country Shamanism, The Art of Creating a Magical Session, Shadows in the Session, The Presence of the Anomalous in Psychotherapy, and Potential Not Pathology, Helping Your Clients Transform Using Ericksonian Psychotherapy. Welcome, Paul. Oh, thank you again. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. We've mm -hmm. covered quite a bit of ground in our previous interviews, and now we'll be talking about uh, an individual who I think you would regard as, as one of your heroes uh, as a psychotherapist, Milton Erickson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he's probably one of the more definitive, uh, I guess, researchers, practitioners, uh, I would say, on the way I conduct therapy. And unfortunately, it's kind of an unsung hero because so much of modern therapy has uh, Erickson's fingerprints. Uh, for example, uh, the, the idea of brief therapy has a, a root in the work of Erickson, and his work in the realms of clinical hypnosis, hypnotherapy, is, is legendary, but I'm afraid not enough people know about his remarkable career. No, I studied hypnosis myself. I practiced hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, I think everybody in the field of hypnosis has heard of Milton sure. Erickson, but I never knew the details. Yeah. He, uh, he was a fascinating uh, figure. Uh, and then so much of what's happened to him in his life, he was able to utilize uh, to help other people change their lives. Just a quick biography of him. He he grew up on a farm, I think, out in the uh, Wisconsin. Um, he uh, was very athletic, but about 17 years old, he contracted polio. And he was able to, uh, using the powers of his mind, his uh, we'll call it self-hypnosis, help himself kind of recover from that. And once he was uh, mostly recovered, although he walked with a cane for most of his adult life until eventually uh, the polio flared up again in his old age and he was confined to a wheelchair. But uh, he, he uh, once he recovered, he went to college, became a medical doctor, and uh, attended uh, some uh, trainings by, I think, Clark Hull, who was uh, one of the leading figures of hypnosis. And he studied a, a lot of hypnosis and found his own way to uh, utilize that in his psychotherapy in a way that very few people uh, had ever done before, at least publicly taught how to do. And he, he would um, treat patients, and I'm calling patients because he was a medical doctor, treat patients in a way that no other psychiatrist treated people. This is the era. We're talking about the 40s and 50s when he was uh, in, in his, his prime. Um, where it was uh, psychodynamic, psychoanalysis was one of the predominant ways to where someone would uh, work from a perspective of 
all of these things uh, that are buried deep in the unconscious. You needed to go down and and excavate and go through uh, all kinds of uh, things like free association and dream analysis and, and all of that. Uh, essentially, I, what I refer to as a past-oriented psychotherapy. You know, the way we help you today is go to the past. Yeah. Where Erickson believed the way you help people was to be work in the present and build a compelling future, which is not such a, a new idea now, but at that time it was revolutionary. So he would find whatever resource this person had that was a positive resource and use that resource as a way to reconnect the person to essentially to themselves in a way that they kind of solve their own problem and gave them a compelling future to work toward. Now, this is uh, almost heresy at the time, and some of his um, strange uh, prescriptions that he'd give clients to do led many of his colleagues to even think that, you know, has Erickson had a psychotic break rather than his his patients? Uh, one such case that just comes to my mind is that he was the uh, medical director, I think, at a, a mental hospital in Michigan. And they had this lady who uh, would have these uh, psychotic attacks where she would just freak out and start destroying the furniture and, and it would have to be restrained. It was always an ugly scene. So after a few times of this, Erickson pulls the staff aside and says, uh, when I give you the signal, I want all of you to start destroying the furniture. And he had, he had carefully watched her to when she would go into the state right at the moment. So something happens. She starts to get triggered. And right before she gets there, he signals to the staff who starts destroying the furniture. And then the woman comes out and stop it, stop it, stop doing that. And, and for some reason after that, she stopped destroying things. She, it's like it interrupted the, the pattern, and she was able to kind of move forward with more of the, the, the therapy that, that would help her. So that I didn't learn that in graduate school, you know. So That's not one of the techniques they no. teach. Yeah, no, not at all. And that was the other thing, too. He would tailor every intervention based on the person rather than a theory. Some people say that Erickson made up new theories and techniques every client. Uh, it was new. It was never something that he did the previous time. He only gave you what you needed in that moment. Well, he obviously, from my perspective, was using his intuition. Oh, yes. Not yes. so much his logical mind. Right. He was reaching deep within himself, and he was able, a very, very careful observer, to know when, when the moment was just right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had this uh, amazing ability to observe people. Uh, I, I remember uh, reading um, a, a dialogue, and it may have been with uh, Ernest Rossi, one of his main students, where Erickson was was saying something about, you know, could you, I, in this case, I was able to tell when she was going into trance. And I think they said, well, how could you see? Because you couldn't really see her eyes and everything. And Erickson, who would talk really slowly sometimes, would say, like, I noticed the pulse in her ankle started to slow down. So he had such amazing observation skills. And it does, if you really look, there's a little slight pulse in around our ankle, but he was able to spot that mm -hmm. and know when things were starting to occur. Now, I would never have that ability uh, to even think to look there, but to have that kind of 
that uh, intuitive insight and then overall observation, it, it was, it's just remarkable. Well, it's intriguing to me that a person with uh, such a pronounced intuition was nevertheless able to uh, become basically the founder of a school of psychotherapy. So I, I have to assume that uh, people have found ways to at least in part systematize what he did. In part, yes. Um, the, the problem, again, with Erickson is every, going back to what I said, every intervention was new. So what we try to do is we try to look for, for common patterns and, and things like that. It's very difficult because destroying furniture, as we were joking, is, is not something we learn, and it might not work with someone else. I've studied Erickson for so many years, and I still don't understand him. But my understanding is simply he saw people as, as if, Whatever was going on with them, they were locked in a context to where it's almost like there's a frame around the person. And inside that frame is a problem. Now, when we try to come up with our own solutions to the problem, we're still stuck in that frame. We're stuck in that context. You can't have a problem without a solution. You got a solution, but you still got a problem. So what Erickson would do would almost go outside the frame mm -hmm. to where the resource or, or what was. people call thinking outside the box. Yes, oh, extreme, you know, mm -hmm. and then have them uh, do things out here that you wouldn't think would relate to this, but it but it would. Here's an example: he had a um, uh, a boy uh, who was uh, having a lot of issues wetting the bed and uh, controlling his bladder, things like that. So he had the uh, mother go in at five o'clock in the morning get up and check to see if the boy had wet the bed. Okay, and we're talking, a, you know, kind of like a middle school boy. Uh, so it's about 10, 11 years old. And if he had, she was to get the boy up and go in, and for the next hour they were supposed to work on the boy's handwriting to make it as as beautiful as it could be, to really focus and all of that. After a few weeks of this, the boy's uh, incontinence started to decrease. Well, that's he needed control, motor control, in, in, in an area that controlled his bladder. Erickson felt that, well, if he had control in another area, that's a resource that's indirectly tied to this. Mm -hmm. So by instead of just staying inside the problem, he goes out, well, where else do you have the ability for muscle control? You know, it's like when uh, people do... Uh, a hypnotic intervention. If if we stay within that problem, uh, let's say someone's got anxiety and trying to tell somebody, now don't freak out, uh, you know, calm down and, and all of that, a lot of times that doesn't do anything. But by going out and asking them about times where they have been calm. So someone who's really anxious about uh, public speaking, I wouldn't want to focus on talking about the public speaking and re-talking because it continues to solidify the problem stuck in the context. So I may say, what do you enjoy doing? And they say, well, I like uh, walking in nature. Well, what do you like about walking in nature? And just by talking about that, the, the patient client begins to, to calm down. So by getting outside, activating these resources, eventually he found a way to bring those into that frame, and then the frame changes. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's reframing in a way.
Well, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, I'm a Go player, which is an ancient Chinese game like chess. Okay. And uh, one of the things I learned, I'm not a great Go master by any means, but one of the main principles of, of Go is if you try to attack your opponent directly, you're likely to lose. Right. But if you develop an indirect attack yes. in the game of Go, where you, you sort of gently surround uh, the, the uh, position of your opponent, you're likely to be more successful than if you go at it immediately. Yeah, that, that, that would be a, a excellent analogy mm-hmm. to the way Erickson did therapy. The thing is, I found is that he never tried to eradicate the parts of ourselves. He just tried to get to move indirectly mm-hmm. people uh, to certain uh, positions or actions or emotions that would win the game, if you will. Yeah. And uh, I guess if you're a very linear thinker and you're stuck in the, the past oriented, you have to do it a certain way. This probably was absolutely confounding uh, to many of his colleagues, but yet he, he got a lot of amazing uh, results. They eventually, toward the end of his life, they began calling him the Wizard of the Desert because he lived in, uh, he had moved to Phoenix Mm -hmm. because the weather was better for his polio uh, condition. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that he was able to use self-hypnosis to address his own polio, which is a very severe disease. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that's the secret, too, of Erickson's uh, hypnotic magic is he was always in trance first. Because in therapy in general, we are resonating. If it's good therapy, we're resonating. So if the hypnotherapist is already slightly going into a trance, a mild trance, it's almost inviting the other person to go into a trance. Mm. And as a result, they're both in a trance and they're both sharing and co-creating an experience as opposed to a therapist or hypnotist who is on the kind of the outside directing. Now, you will begin to such and such. You will begin to close your eyes and you will begin almost like to overpower the part that maybe doesn't want to go into trance. And what Erickson would do would always just invite people. Uh, one of the things he, he would say is, now you don't have to go into a trance. You can take all the time you need as slowly as you want. You don't have to relax. It's really up to you. Just take every breath in a way that helps you. Now, that's different than, in just a minute, I'm going to do such and such. He's taking that indirect route to where I have permission to go into a trance, but also to not. He puts the burden, I don't even like that word, he puts the catalyst back on the client, but he gives them freedom to do. And his thing is, if they decide not to do what he says, they are making a choice. They're making their own choice. And if you go back to that time period he started, the the therapist was the expert. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you don't want to talk about something, that's resistance. And we got to plow through and get And If you didn't want to talk about that, that's fine. He had other ways to go around and get to it. The title of your book is Potential not pathology. I think that says a lot right there. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's what I loved about Erickson is that very rarely do you see him directly deal with the problem because more uh, trying to eradicate the problem leads to more of the problem. So rather than looking at your deficits, what are your assets? 
One of the most famous and moving stories, uh, Erickson, uh, that was uh, relayed to me by my mentor, Bill O'Hanlon, who was a direct student of Erickson, is uh, Erickson was going to give a lecture in Milwaukee. And a colleague of his had an aunt in Milwaukee who had unfortunately lost her ability to walk. She was a bit of what we'd call the spinster, older lady, unmarried, but she had plenty of money, lived in this huge house. But she was isolated because, you know, during this time, the 50s, if you were in a wheelchair, that was like a social, you know, it kind of avoided those people. And he was, he knew his uh, aunt was depressed. So since Erickson was going to Milwaukee, I asked Milton, would you stop in on my aunt? And Erickson agreed to do it. Well, Erickson went to see this lady, and he rang the doorbell, and she opens the door in a wheelchair. And Erickson, again, he had polio, so he walked with a cane. And I guess she saw his cane, and there's like an unspoken kindred spirit. Here's this younger man here, but having a slight limp with a cane. And so she brought him in the house, and a common thing we do is to show the house. So she took him around and showed the house, and... um, he noticed everywhere in the house it was dark. The curtains were covered up. It's just dark and unwelcoming. Except when they got to the part of the house that was her greenhouse where she had her plants. It was bright and all these plants there. And Erickson was looking at these rows of pots. And Erickson said, uh, what are those? And she said, uh, those are African violets. I, I spliced them and I, I kind of create, you know, transplant them. And Erickson, who grew up on a farm, knew a lot about that. And he said, those are very difficult to do. You have a real skill at that. And he said, there's such a difference in how she was talking about her plants and the rest of the house. And uh, he, Erickson then turned to her and said, your nephew's very worried about you. And she kind of sank down. He says, you're not going out. You're not going to church like you used to love to do. You're just isolated. He thinks you're depressed. She kind of nodded her head. And Erickson said, I don't think you're depressed. I think your problem is that you're you're not being a very good Christian. Which caught her by surprise. And he said, because he heard that church sounds like that was important to her. She wasn't doing anymore. And he said, I think you need to take a small clipping and pot of an African violet. And every time you get your church bulletin and there's a a birth, a death, a wedding, a graduation, you take this plant, small plant, to the house as a gift. And with that, he left. Mm -hmm. And... Now, but, but she wouldn't be able to take it personally, given her disability. Right. Yeah, she had a driver. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, yeah had a driver to come take her. He left. And then years later, he would pull out for his students newspaper headline. This happened in the, the uh, early 50s, late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. newspaper headline. African Violet Queen of Milwaukee dies, mourned by thousands. She became a celebrity. She was interacting. Mm-hmm. He was th- 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 what a what a change. And so they asked him. We're taught that that you're supposed to go into somebody's past and unpack stuff, or to challenge their thinking, or how did you know how to do that? And he just said, "I found it was easier to water the African violets in her life than pull the weeds of her depression." 
And I read stuff like that, and I went, oh my gosh, he's from another planet. Absolutely brilliant. But unfortunately, we don't think like that a lot of times. We focus too much on that that problem. Mm -hmm. So by indirectly, he got her to get out using her religious background to get out and interact. And then she got a lot of good feeling and connection. And she loved to plant. And she cured her own depression. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. Uh, I gather that Milton Erickson also uh, had uh, relationships with other leading figures of his age, such as uh, uh, Margaret Mead and and her husband, uh, Bateson. Right, yeah. Yeah, uh, Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead, uh, and for those who don't know, are anthropologists. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they were married for a short time, and they did these... uh, trips to different parts of the world and filmed kind of tribal uh, indigenous populations. And they I think they were in Bali and they were filming uh, these dancers that were supposed to be going into these mystical states. And, and they viewed it as they were going into trances. So they called up uh, Erickson. They'd heard about him and uh, asked him to to come and watch the video of these dancers to tell them right when they were going into trance. And, and this is from a guy, again, who can see if someone's going into trance by the, the, the heartbeat and the, near the ankle, the pulse <laughs> near the ankle. And so he would watch the videos and say, and right there. And so that really, for, for Gregory Bateson, mm-hmm. he was totally blown away. And the more he got to know Erickson, Erickson's work became a real influence on Bateson's work, uh, which uh, he, Bateson's one of the founders of the uh, the, the what we call the uh, systemic therapy, brief therapy movement. I mean, there's so many people I could mention, but Erickson had a profound influence on Baton's approach to psychotherapy because mm-hmm. he was Bateson was studying the communication patterns of schizophrenic families and mm-hmm. things like that. He referred to uh, Erickson as the Mozart of psychotherapy because he er, the way Erickson is working sometimes with people severely mentally ill, he's, he's seeing things totally different than anyone else. A story that Bateson often repeated was there was a, um, a, a gentleman in a mental hospital that Erickson was the director of, and this man believed he was Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And he would uh, cause all kinds of problems, and, and there was all contention. It was hard to get him to connect with the other people. So Erickson, after learning of this case, he, uh, he had this started this woodworking group for some of the patients, you know, as a way to, to kind of uh, get together and, and, and complete a task together. So he went to Jesus Christ's room and walks in, introduced himself, and said, I hear you've been a carpenter. I could really use your help with this group. So he's listing a resource because if you're Jesus you, you've got to be a carpenter right and so the guy felt somebody wow you know not only is connecting with me where I am he's kind of using it as a way to to pull him into this group so he brought the guy to the woodworking group and in time the guy started interacting with the patients and the staff in a different way and slowly he became uh, easier to treat and then eventually made a recovery and returned to society. So instead of fighting those symptoms, Eric, uh, Erickson utilized those symptoms as a pathway 
uh, to healing. Mm-hmm. So that, that those kind of things have just inspired people like Bates and, and, and many other followers. Now, I was very influenced uh, early in my career by Jean Houston. Oh, yeah. And uh, she always used to say, there's no such thing as a pathology. The things that you may consider your worst characteristics may also turn out to be your greatest strength. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And, and again, what's the context it's happening in? Uh, something that might be really, really horrible it may be an asset in a different mm-hmm. context. So I, I say this to my students a lot of time, um, particularly those who are the the more uh, pacifist type, quiet. They don't want to hurt anybody. You know, and they're wonderful people, but and they sometimes think that they they aren't aggressive and violent. And I said, so you're somebody who who's trying to to, to push away this this aggression and all that, rather than welcoming it and loving it and understanding it. Said there's a time. To hurt someone. And they'll say, well, there's never a time. I said, okay, so someone breaks into your house and is going to try to murder your children. Y- y- you know, in that context, no one would think you're a horrible person from smashing the, the person in the head with a bat. They would say you're a horrible human being. But now if you happen to go to church on Sunday and just randomly start doing that, you know, so it's not the, the actual action, it's a lot of times the context. And Erickson was able to see people, much like Gene Houston said, what's the context that's mm-hmm. happening? And when you shift the context, what's good and bad, which is our distinction, will sometimes shift mm-hmm. as well. Gene Houston uses the example of Annie Sullivan, who was the mentor to Helen Keller, the deaf and blind woman who became a great public figure because she was taught to to read and write and uh, using, uh, uh, well, she had a terrible temper. Mm -hmm. And in most contexts, that temper wouldn't have served her well. But as the teacher to a deaf and blind girl to break through that incredible barrier to Mm -hmm open the world up to her took right. that kind of intensity yeah yeah and and that ability to kind of accept uh, a little bit I've read about Annie Solomon she was able to accept what is mm-hmm. and to utilize it and I think just all of us we don't like to number one accept what is and a lot of times we think it's something that needs to be banished rather than utilize to maybe grow and, and be a, a, a better person yeah. and I think that's the whole potential instead of the pathology. So, I mean, all of us from that context, we all have pathology. But if we change the context, we may have more potential. It's just the the, uh, the perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, Milton Erickson, uh, as I understand it, died in 1980, right. many decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his work lives on. What What's the status of Ericksonian psychotherapy today? Well, it... Outside of the United States, I am told it's uh, it's thriving. In the United States, uh, not as much as we'd like. I, I've just uh, came as as we discussed from the uh, the Erickson uh, Congress, which is every four years, people from all over the world come into Phoenix and uh, share information on Erickson's work. Well, the the number of uh, people in the United States, I think, who know about Erickson's work has dropped. The sad thing is that much of the things that they do find its roots in Erickson, whereas outside the country, there's still uh, more of a reverence for Erickson. Here's an example. Uh, one of the most utilized therapies is called solution-focused therapy. 
uh, Steve DeShazer and Kim Insuberg, who kind of started that, directly influenced by Erickson. Uh, Steve DeShazer, before he started that, wrote more papers, I think, than anybody for a while about Erickson's work. Uh, all kinds of, of offshoots uh, of uh, Erickson's work exist, but so many people who practice it don't realize that it got its root in Erickson. The field of family therapy. Erickson left a tremendous thumbprint on that. Uh, even um, uh, people who uh, would, would never have tied Erickson to that. Somehow his ideas of how changing something in one part of a family can have an effect in another, which is systemic therapy. Uh, again, Bateson, Erickson influenced Bateson, Bateson's work. Uh, I think we have probably not marketed, and I hate to use that term, Erickson, as, as well as we could. We, we find there is uh, some uh, interest in Erickson's hypnotic work, but as a therapy, unfortunately, I don't think it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. we're kind of going backwards, that we're going back into this stay within the frame of a problem therapy a lot of times instead of seeing that there's there's great potential to, to utilize this work more effectively. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul Leslie, you are an Ericksonian. You're carrying on the tradition. I, I try. I try not to use that term, but at heart, I am. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I, it would be natural, I should think, for each new generation to uh, put their own spin on things. Oh yeah. You know, we we're we we're talking about Carl Jung and how the the Jungians and and how a lot of times uh, Jung was not comfortable uh, having. Youngians, and right. he, I think the quote is, "Well, thank God I'm not a youngian," is what Carl said. You <laughs> yeah. know, and I, I remember, I think I relayed the story about uh, one of, uh, I think it was Herb Lustig. I may be wrong about that, but one of his uh, uh, Erickson students who had trained with him, and Erickson said, "Yeah, go, go share, go do the, you know." And he says, "Well, what should I call myself, Doctor Erickson?" And Erickson said, "Well." Herb is fine. You don't have to change your name to go do your work. Mm -hmm. So he always wanted us to, to, to do our thing, mm -hmm. learn, but to do our thing and to be unique. So, yeah. yeah. So, in other words, to, to really be an Ericksonian is to be yourself. Yes. That, oh, ah, excellent. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Well, Paul, Leslie, thank you so much for sharing your passion, your enthusiasm, and your excitement of, about this very significant figure in the history of psychology, uh, psychotherapy, and psychiatry. Well, thank you for giving me a platform to do that, Jeff. You're very welcome. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.